Well, good morning, everyone. It's always great to be here at Bethany, and I bring you greetings from Emmaus Bible College in Dubuque. We, uh, we're approaching the final week of the semester. Uh, it's been a great semester. We've, uh, one of the things we've been doing uh, this year is uh, taking our theme from Galatians, actually, Galatians chapter 5, and what it means to, to walk in the Spirit. So I appreciate being able to pick up here in chapter 6, and I'd invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 6 this morning. One of the more bizarre characters of church history was a man by the name of Simeon the Stylite. Simeon was a monk who lived in the 5th century, and he, he took extraordinary measures in his quest for holiness. For 36 years, he lived on top of a pillar in the Syrian desert. During the, the last 20 years the, of his life, the pillar was nearly 60 feet tall. And there he stood or sat summer and winter through sunshine and rain and storm and frost, seeking to commune with God, seeking to be spiritual. And he would preach to the curious onlookers that would come by. But the life of Simeon the Stylite raises an important question for us this morning. What does it mean to be spiritual? Philip Ryken says, as far as Simeon was concerned, one could be more spiritual in the desert than the city and more spiritual off the ground than on it, the higher the better. But was he right? Do we have to withdraw from the world and, and live on a pole to be spiritual? I hope not. Spirituality, as you know, is, is popular these days, but but people have very different ideas about what spirituality entails. Everything from Zen meditation groups to, to yoga paths to psychic readings, channeling workshops, Wicca practices, out-of-body experiences, UFO phenomena, Native American sweat lodges. People are seeking all kinds of different ways to nurture their souls. But how refreshing it is for us to be able to turn to the Bible this morning where we have revelation from God on the nature of the spiritual life. And what we discover in the Bible is that, that true, true spirituality is not some kind of quest for self-fulfillment. Rather, it is the life that we receive from the Holy Spirit through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And that puts us on a, a new plane. It, it, it gives us a new heart. It brings the Spirit of God within us. And, and our passage this morning here in Galatians 6, what we learn is that, that true spirituality doesn't involve living in isolation on the top of a pillar, but it's worked out together in the body of Christ as we walk by the Spirit, as we humbly care for one another. That's the biblical vision of the spiritual life. So look with me this morning. I, I, our text is technically uh, chapter 6, 1 through 10. But I, for context, I want us to start at the end of chapter 5. Galatians 5, verse 25. Paul says, If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. 
Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each one will have to bear his own load. One who is taught the word must share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked, for whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Father, thank you for your word. We again pray that you would speak to us. Renew our minds this morning as we give ourselves and our attention to what you have revealed for us and give us eyes to see the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. Now, as you know, as you've been studying uh, the letter of Galatians, you have seen that Paul in this book is, is really defending the gospel of grace. We're saved by faith in Jesus Christ. We're we're not justified by keeping certain rituals or religious laws. No, we rest in the work of Christ alone to save us. That was really the problem in Galatia. Uh, False teachers were telling the believers that they had to add circumcision. They had to to, to follow the rituals and the restrictions of the law of Moses to be saved. And Paul has been writing to combat that idea. When we come to chapter 5, Paul emphasizes that we are, we're free in Christ from the bondage of the law. But that doesn't mean we become lawless, that we just carry on in sin. No, we, we wrestle with our sin nature, even as believers, but as believers, we are also given the Holy Spirit to to lead us, to, to guide us, to strengthen us, and he's at work to produce fruit, spiritual fruit in our lives. And so we're to use our freedom to love one another, to serve one another, to be led by the Spirit and not to indulge the desires of the flesh. And so the spiritual life is to to walk by the Spirit, um, which means that, again, the fruit of the Spirit is is manifest, is is demonstrated in, in us in very practical ways. We, to be led by the Spirit however, is, is a fight, isn't it? And we, we experience this fight on a daily basis. Uh, we know that the flesh is at war with the spirit. And so that's the reality of our 
experience as believers in Christ. We have the spirit within us that gives us desires to live for God that is producing fruit in us so that we, we want to serve one another. But what else is involved in the spiritual life? As Paul continues and, and moves into chapter 6, one of the main ideas of our passage is this. To walk by the spirit means to humbly care for one another and guard against sin. To humbly care for one another and guard against sin. And Paul shows us how that works out in several different ways. First of all, at the end of chapter 5, we see it works out by, by not competing against one another. Look again at verse 25. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. So first of all, to walk by the Spirit means that we're, we're not competing with one another in the body of Christ, in the church. Verse 26 is very insightful because it reveals that our attitudes and our actions towards others really flows out of our opinion of ourselves. It's when we're conceited, when we're full of ourselves, that we tend to provoke, or another word to, to, that could, you could translate this word provoke is, is challenge one another. The word conceited describes someone who, whose, whose opinion of himself or herself is, is vain, but it's also false. As F.F. Bruce puts it, he says to, it, it's to boast where there's nothing to boast about. Everything that we have, including any abilities that we have, we recognize come from God. These are gifts from a good God to us. But, but if you think about it, conceited people are motivated either by feelings of superiority or inferiority. If we think of ourselves as superior to, to others, then we, we want to challenge them. We provoke them because we want our superiority to come out and to be on display so that other person or, or everyone around can see how superior we are. On the other hand, if we see someone else who is superior to us in some way or another, then, then what do we do? We envy them. We're jealous. We're resentful. In either, in either case, conceit can't bear rivals. But when we're keeping in step with the Spirit, when we're walking by the Spirit, our desire will be actually not to promote ourselves, but to serve one another, to consider others more important than ourselves, to actually rejoice in the success of others, not to envy them. Do you have any rivals in the church? We shouldn't. When we're walking by the Spirit, he'll, he'll produce in us a kind of self-forgetfulness, a Christ-centeredness that works itself out in, in other-centeredness. So much spirituality today is self-oriented, 
as, as people try to get in touch with their inner feelings and, and, and find self-fulfillment and self-realization and enter into deeper self-awareness. But true biblical spirituality is actually about being drawn out of ourselves to focus on the Lord Jesus Christ and exalt him and, and find our identity in him and then humbly care for others, not compete with one another in the body of Christ. A second mark that we are walking by the Spirit is the desire and the effort to restore others who are caught in sin. Verse 1 of chapter 6, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. So another mark of walking in the Spirit is that we don't rejoice when others fail. Conceited people tend to do that. But instead, we desire to restore them. There may be times that we are seeking to walk in the Spirit, but that battle with the flesh gets the better of us. It knocks us off our stride, and it, it, it makes us take a false step. And for the one who, who gets caught up in some transgression, which is so easy to do, there's so many temptations all around us, and, and someone who falls into that trap and gets caught up in, in some kind of sin, what does the word of God tell us? It tells us you who are spiritual should restore such a person in a spirit of gentleness. Now, that's not always our first reaction, is it? Often when we see someone caught up in, in something wrong or we, we see them heading towards the trap, we don't know what to say. We don't know what to do, and so we do nothing. That seems easier. A lot of us don't, don't like confrontation. Maybe our response is to gossip. Did, did you see? Did you hear what that, that other person did? But Paul shows us that the spiritual reaction is to help to restore that person, to point them back to the word of God and to Jesus Christ who, who can forgive them and get them back on track again and walking with the Spirit. Now, Paul doesn't in, in this verse lay out a program for how we do that, but the Lord Jesus himself gives us some important steps on thinking through that process in Matthew chapter 18. We won't turn there, but I just want to highlight that in Matthew 18, 15 through 17, the first step is to go to our brother or sister and raise the issue with them face to face. Not to gossip, not to just look away, but to go to them, to speak to them. Now, that's not easy to do. It's not easy to do. But it's part of how we love and care for one another in the body of Christ. And we're motivated to, to take that risk because we, we recognize that sin is always harmful. It's always destructive to us. We don't want to leave another brother or sister in that condition. Now, if you see someone, thankfully, uh, thankfully the snow has not come yet. Or at least it hasn't stayed. If you see someone in the parking lot slip and fall on the ice, 
You don't just keep walking, I hope. You, you go to them, you tend to them, you, you help them get back on their feet. If they need medical attention, then, then you, you, you're there to help. You're, you're there to minister to them, to restore them. And that should be obvious to us in the physical realm. But for a spirit-filled church, it should be obvious, just as obvious as, as we seek to help others in trouble in the spiritual realm. Now, notice in verse 1, Paul says, this is a job for you who are spiritual. In one sense, we could say all believers are spiritual. All true believers in the Lord Jesus Christ have the Holy Spirit dwelling in them. But on the other hand, some believers are, are more mature than others. Some are, are walking in the Spirit more faithfully than others. And the fruit of the Spirit is more evident in their lives. And, and that fruit of the Spirit is necessary in this delicate work of restoration. And notice it says, you who are spiritual should restore him. How? In a spirit of gentleness. Paul has just said in, in chapter 5, verse 23, that gentleness is part of the fruit of the Spirit. Now, to be sure, there are, there are situations where you work through the, the, the steps that the Lord Jesus laid out in Matthew 18 when, when discipline is necessary. And there's, there's not the response that you, you hope for when you seek to restore. Discipline is necessary. Confrontation at times is necessary. Rebuke even is necessary. But this text reminds us that, that a harsh, angry, judgmental attitude is not only ineffective, it's also a sign of spiritual immaturity. Martin Luther, the reformer, said of our text, If you see any brother cast down, afflicted by occasion of sin which he, he has committed, run to him and reaching out your hand, raise him up again, comfort him with sweet words, and embrace him with motherly arms. And that takes, that takes someone who is filled with the Spirit with the fruit of the Spirit. Could, could you be, let me challenge each of us, could you be that person to another brother or sister in need? It's, it's not an easy process, but since the, the goal is restoration, it's worth the risk. And it's a mark of walking in the Spirit. But notice one more thing of verse 1. Paul adds, keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Even a, a so-called spiritual person is prone to sin. And, and the more we walk in the spirit, the more we're aware of that. And so we need to guard our own hearts. The temptation Paul may have in mind particularly here is spiritual pride. One writer says, it is not hard to feel at least a little self-righteous when we are correcting someone else's sin. The more we learn about someone else's depravity, the easier it is to look down on him or her. But if we know our own hearts, we know our own proneness to wander, 
then there's no room for pride. There's no room for a, a, a superior attitude, only humility, only dependence on God's grace. We know our own sins and failures. 1 Corinthians 10, 12, Paul warned, therefore, anyone, let, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. And we need one another in the body of Christ to encourage us to keep walking together in the Spirit. Now, there's another mark of walking in the Spirit that works, that's worked out in the body of Christ. Verse 2, bearing one another's burdens. Verse 2 says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. The assumption behind this command is that we all have burdens and God doesn't mean for us to, to carry them alone. We're to help one another in our struggles. To bear simply means to carry. And, and a burden is a weight that's difficult to carry. We need help with it. And so the idea is that we come alongside one another and help shoulder the load. One way we like to do this at Arbor Oaks Bible Chapel, uh, my home church in Dubuque, is that whenever someone needs help moving, uh, moving their, their house or apartment or whatever it might be, the email goes out and, and people come in mass to help in many different ways. And we've seen just a, what a wonderful way this is to demonstrate love and care for one another in the body of Christ. And it's actually a, a testimony to the realtor often and to the neighbors around. Um, it happens so often, it seems, an email went out yesterday for two more moves coming up. Uh, we, we had t-shirts made, Arbor Oaks moving crew on the front, and on the back is our verse, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. I'm not sure Paul was thinking of that, but I'm sure he would approve. Sometimes, sometimes though, in reality, we face burdens that really are beyond our strength that we can't handle on our own. They take many forms, sorrow, worry, doubt, grief, finances, loneliness, sickness, family problems, marital problems, depression, and more. First and foremost, burdens teach us to rely on, on God. He's ultimately the one who carries us. Psalm 55, 22 says, cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. In fact, if you think about it, our, our biggest burden of all, the burden of our sin and our, our guilt is a burden that only God could bear for us. And that's exactly what our Lord Jesus did. On the cross, he, he, he bore that burden for us. He took our sin upon himself and he died for our sins. He bore our sins, Peter says, in his own body on the tree, on the cross, so that we could be forgiven, that we, so that we could be reconciled to God. And if you're a believer in, in Christ you know the incredible relief and, and joy of having that burden of sin removed by Christ. And if he dealt with our greatest burden, then surely he can help, he can handle those other lesser burdens as well. 
And so we begin by, by giving our burdens, casting all our cares upon him because he cares for us. We pray for his grace. But here's the point of our text. Here's the point that Paul wants us to see in particular about uh, in regard to those who are walking by the Spirit. That very often, the way God manifests his grace and supplies help for us in the midst of our burdens is through other believers in the body of Christ. I think of a particular occasion in the life of the Apostle Paul. He admits and, and confesses that he was, he was burdened and overwhelmed. He says in, in 2 Corinthians 7, 5, he says, For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without fear within. The Apostle Paul testifies that throughout his ministry, he, he faced many burdens. But the next verse in 2 Corinthians 7 says, But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us, how? By the coming of Titus. Titus was a brother that God used in Paul's life to, to bring help, to bring encouragement to him in the midst of the burdens and the fears that he was dealing with. Titus brought, brought good news to a weary Paul. And so he was the instrument of encouragement in the midst of Paul's discouragement. Are you helping to bear the burdens of others? Now, the other side of the coin is don't try to bear all your burdens on your own or in your own strength. We often think, oh, I don't want to trouble other people with, with my burdens. But, but, but that's the point. God gave us one another in the body of Christ for this purpose, to, to love one another, to serve one another, to help one another, to care for one another. It's not that we broadcast every detail of our, our trials, but when the load is particularly heavy and, and, and difficult to bear, let someone else in the body of Christ have the joy, have the blessing of helping and serving and ministering the comfort of God to you. Paul adds that in doing this, in bearing one another's burdens, we fulfill the law of Christ. Now, throughout the epistle, Paul has made it very clear that we're not saved by, by the works of the law. But after we have been saved through faith in Christ, we have a new heart that wants to obey God. And so we seek to fulfill the law of Christ. That's a, the response of our spiritual heart that God has made alive. We want to obey. We want to follow him. Well, what is the law of Christ? Some have summarized it simply as this. It's the law of love. Paul wrote in chapter 5, verse 14, he said, the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said to his disciples in the Gospel of John, John 13, 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. So the law of Christ calls believers to love one another, and a key way that we do that 
is by bearing one another's burdens. Let me challenge all of us to, to think of someone that, that you could come alongside and, and help in, in some practical way. Maybe it's simply um, an encouraging word. Or maybe there are other practical ex- expressions of, of bearing one another's burdens, but, but do it and so fulfill the law of Christ. So far, we've seen that a spiritual person, one who is seeking to keep in step with the Spirit, isn't conceited, isn't isn't provoking and envying others, but rather they're seeking to restore the fallen, and they help to bear the burdens of others. Now in verses 3 through 5, Paul adds that the spiritual person thinks rightly of himself and his responsibility before God. Look at verse 3. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each one will have to bear his own load. Conceited people are consumed only with themselves. They're not concerned with the burdens or the needs of others. They're not interested in humbly caring for others. They're too self-centered. And Paul warns against that kind of of self-deception in verse 3. People consumed with their own abilities and gifts who think they're really something special. They're only fooling themselves. Paul is quite blunt. He says, if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. A flight attendant once told the heavyweight boxing boxing champion Muhammad Ali to prepare for takeoff and fasten his seatbelt. Ali objected, Superman don't need no seatbelt. To which she immediately replied, Superman don't need no airplane. (laughs) Sooner or later, people who think there's something end up crashing back to earth. So Paul's saying... Get off your high horse. Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought. Be willing to humbly care for others. But in verses 4 and 5, he reminds us of our our own personal responsibility before God. We, We can always find people who are doing worse than us and prop ourselves up on that basis. Like the Pharisee in Luke chapter 8 who prayed... God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. But walking in the Spirit doesn't lead us to be comparing ourselves with others to build ourselves up. Caring for others, it leads us rather to care for others. And and, and in doing so, we, we don't want to be their judge. We don't want to think of ourselves as superior. Rather, Paul exhorts us to test our own work, examine your own work. And and what we discover when we we do that, we examine ourselves, is really we have no cause for boasting except in the Lord and his grace to us, his merit, his enablement. And we say with Paul, as he will say in a few verses, verse 14, far be it for me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you look closely at these verses, verse 5 actually might seem like a contradiction to verse 2. 
Verse 2 says, bear one another's burdens. And then verse 5 says, each one will have to bear his own load. Did Paul forget what he had just said in verse 2? No. The point is, even though we're helping to bear each other's burdens, at the end of the day, we are responsible before God, each of us, for our, our own behavior. You won't have to answer for what you've done with someone else's gifts, but, but you are accountable for the way that you bear the responsibilities that God has given you. And so there's a, there's a healthy balance about thinking rightly about ourselves, examining ourselves before God, not on the basis of, of, of this person or that person who I feel superior to or inferior to, but we stand before God. And we do so only in Christ. And that's why Paul will say, I have nothing to boast in except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this doesn't mean we suddenly become ultra introspective. In fact, one of the prime indications of life in the spirit is, is again, this concern that we have for others. And that's demonstrated in a specific way in verse 6. Share with faithful teachers. Verse 6, one who is taught the word must share all good things with the one who teaches. Now, at, at just at first reading, we might wonder how does this verse fit with what Paul has been saying? Well, I think he includes it here as yet another example of a burden bearing. It illustrates also the, the mutual benefit that we have in bearing one another's burdens. The one who gives himself to the, the teaching of the word invests long hours of study and, and preparation so that he has something to give the church, solid instruction from, from the Bible that nourishes and strengthens and exhorts and builds up the people of God. Faithful teachers help protect God's people from false teaching. And so Paul instructs here in verse 6 that those who are taught the word should in, in turn share all good things with the one who teaches. So that that, that one is free to, to give himself to the teaching and preaching ministry of the word. Now, this was particularly on Paul's heart in this context in Galatians. The, the teaching ministry was, was so crucial because of the very real and live presence of false teachers that were trying to move the believers away from the truth of the gospel and the word of God. And so we need to have teachers who are able to devote themselves to the ministry of, of the word and, and we should share with them, bear burdens, and there's mutual benefit in that. Finally, as we walk by the Spirit, we need to understand the principle of sowing and reaping. Sowing and reaping. Look at verse 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, 
as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. You'll notice here Paul uses a farming illustration, which we can certainly appreciate here in Iowa, right? The principle is simple, but it's a powerful one when we apply it to the spiritual life. The harvest you reap depends on what you sow. The harvest you reap depends on what you sow. And Paul says, don't be deceived. Don't think we can get around God's principles, God's laws. We often think we can in, in our arrogance. We think we can get away with sin. We think nobody will notice. It won't affect anyone. And we believe the lie that, that I can do whatever I want without being held accountable, without there being any consequences. But Paul reminds us, in God's world, we reap what we sow. Now, this is a critical principle for us. The flesh, that part in us, that even as Christians is, is still drawn to sin, the flesh Again, as he has indicated in, in verse 5, is at war with the Spirit. And so to sow to the flesh is, in a sense, we could say, to indulge it, to listen to it, to let down our spiritual guard, to try to satisfy the flesh instead of crucifying the flesh. John Stott gives us a, a few examples of what that looks like, and we could multiply these examples, but listen to what he says. Every time we allow our minds to harbor a grudge, nurse a grievance, entertain an impure fantasy, or wallow in self-pity, we are sowing to the flesh. Every time we linger in bad company whose sinister influence we know we cannot resist, Every time we lie in bed when we ought to be up and praying. Every time we look at pornography. Every time we take a risk which strains our self-control. We are sowing, sowing, sowing to the flesh. The problem with sowing to the flesh is that we reap what we sow. We reap corruption we reap destruction, not holiness. If you continually look at porn, you will reap sexual immorality. You will reap so many destructive consequences. But you know, one of the great things that I love about the moral instructions of the New Testament is that when it tells us to say no to something, it holds out something better that we should and we can say yes to. So instead of sowing to the flesh, Paul says, sow to the Spirit. What does that look like? Well, there are many ways to sow to the Spirit. It's, it's really giving ourselves to pursuing the things that are pleasing to God, to the things that are, are helpful to us spiritually as we seek to keep in step with the Spirit. What do you allow your mind to dwell on? Paul says in Romans 12, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal, by the renewing of your mind. Let the Lord Jesus Christ be the focus of your life and your thoughts. Treasure him above everything else. Give yourself to the word of God, to, to reading it, to, to studying it, to, to listen, listening to it being taught and preached. 
Give yourself to prayer, to fellowship, to, to serving one another, to caring for one another. Give yourself to worship, to the Lord's Supper, to, to cultivating a heart of thankfulness. Pursue these things and you'll be sowing to the Spirit. And as you sow to the Spirit, Paul says, you will reap eternal life. Now, Paul's not saying we're saved by doing these things. He's made that abundantly clear in this book that we're not saved by works. But these things, these desires that we cultivate, these really are the fruit of salvation. The fruit of the Spirit produces in us these, these desires, the desire to, to pursue the things that are pleasing to God. And as we sow to the Spirit, the ultimate harvest is eternal life where we enjoy the glory of God forever. That's the ultimate outcome of sowing to the Spirit. And so, quickly, verses 9 and 10 conclude by, by basically exhorting us, don't grow weary. All of this is hard work, but don't give up. Keep doing good to, to one another as we walk and serve and share and sow together. It's a fight. The flesh and the spirit war against each other. It takes hard work, just like farming, but a glorious harvest of eternal life is coming. And we can enjoy the fruits of eternal life now, even in this life. So as we, re we conclude, we return to the question, what does, what does true spirituality look like? It doesn't mean living in the desert on top of a pillar. It doesn't mean pursuing self-realization through some new age guru. It doesn't even mean spending all your time cloistered away in secret reading your Bible and praying. We should read our Bible and pray. But this passage teaches us that, that life in the spirit is, is really life in community together. Walking in the spirit is worked out in the fellowship of brothers and sisters in the household of God. True biblical spirituality is not being self-absorbed or conceited. It means humbly caring for one another, not competing against one another. It means gently restoring those who have slipped. It means bearing one another's burdens. It even means thinking rightly about ourselves and our responsibilities before God. It means sharing with one another in practical ways, including supporting the, the faithful teaching ministry of the word. And it means sowing to the spirit, not the flesh. Persevering when you're, you're weary and would rather just throw in the towel and give way to the flesh. And it means being committed to doing good to our brothers and sisters in the family of God. In our individual lives and, and in this local church, this is the work of the Spirit of God in us and through us. And he is at work. He is doing his work. May God help us, each of us, to walk more closely by the Spirit day by day, and, and have at that worked out in this 
this local assembly so that increasingly this would be a spirit-filled church where believers humbly care for one another and together guard against sin for our good and ultimately for the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful that you have not left us to ourselves. You've given us your Holy Spirit to dwell within us, and we're so thankful that your Spirit works in us to to care for one another. I pray for Bethany Bible Chapel that this would be a Spirit-filled church, that the focus of this church would be on the Lord Jesus Christ and on the good news that he has brought. That, that we would care for one another and so fulfill the law of Christ. Help us, protect us from sin and Satan and his attacks, and give us joy even as we are weary. Give us joy as we look forward to eternal life, that great harvest that is coming. We pray in Jesus' name.